Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the provision that this church has received this week, but no different than every week, Father. We know that you are always been at work, always have been at work with us, this little church, keeping us steady and going and helping us do as you call us to do. Uh, we are weak, Father. We, we have limited might, as you can see, and, and as you know full well, we have, um, we have none of the things that the world would say are necessary if we are to do mighty works. But, Father, as we study in chapter 5 of Judges today, we'll know better than, than anyone that that's not a limitation for you and that you have always worked with things that are weak. For your glory, your strength, your power is seen most evidently when you work with those things that have none of their own. So we take comfort in that, Father. We take satisfaction in the reality of who we are in light of who you are. And, and yet, Father, we see that you do things to strengthen us, to give us um, encouragement, even little things like furniture or the facility. But, Father, I pray our hearts would never substitute that for truly what it means to follow and serve you, that, that though these things matter to us, they, they do not take the place, Father, of worshiping in spirit and in truth, and that who we are before the world is truly what matters to us, and that we gather and, in, and do so in comfort so that we can learn, and we learn so that we can apply and we apply these things so that we can be like you, so that we can represent you. The word before us this morning, Father, is a part of that process. We acknowledge that. We acknowledge, Lord, that you wrote it for that purpose. And we also acknowledge, Father, that what we will hear will change us if we are open to it, if we allow the Spirit to do his work, and if we embrace the change that he asks of us, if we repent or if we commit to new things. I pray, Father, you would give us a heart to do that, that very work, that change. And most of all, Father, I thank you for the men and women in this room, collectively your body, who you've called, you've, you've equipped. I thank you for the way they encourage me and for their encouragement to one another, for their prayers to one another, for one another, for their hearts of worship and for their, their love for your word. Things that are precious in your sight and things that are rare in this world. We ask you, Father, that that would always be the case here. And we praise and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 5 of Judges, we ended our teaching in chapter 4 last week, looking at the king of Canaan, defeated by Barak and his army. And as I mentioned last week, in reality, that victory belonged to the Lord. He orchestrated it, he initiated it, and he accomplished it as we studied. The Lord brought it about principally by the hands of two women. First, Deborah, the judge, who announced the manner and the timing of the battle, and she called the man Barak, who the Lord selected to wage war. And she provided Barak with the sign that he was to know would be his indication it was time to enter into the battle. And she even made the point in the moment that the sign had arrived. She really walked him through the process from front to back. She prodded this reluctant warrior. And if it weren't for her involvement, it's safe to say that he might never have entered the battle. The second woman was the one who secured the final victory in that battle. This was Jael, the one who killed Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army. You remember the story last week. I failed to mention last week that Jael, the name Jael, means mountain goat, which is interesting because you have two women, Deborah, who, if you remember, her name means bee, and now Jael, the mountain goat. You have the bee and the mountain goat really driving this process forward. And that name reflects her toughness, doesn't it? She smartly coaxed that commander into her tent and then after putting him to sleep with milk, she dispatched him with a hammer and a tent peg. 
But the way she put him down, it really demonstrated her strength. She had this determination and this courage to do what was necessary. And in the fact that she did it, she freed Israel. Now, chapter four presented us with this rather complicated look at Jewish culture during the time of the third judge. Considered as a study in contrasts. You have, for example, Israel's culture with strong leaders. Only the leaders are all women, which is not what you'd expect in that day and age, certainly. And then for the men of Israel, they had no effective means for challenging the powerful chariots of the Canaanite army. They had no real expectation of winning a military battle. And yet 10,000 of them readily volunteered at the first suggestion to walk into battle without really any hope that they could win, except that the Lord would deliver them. And then you have Israel's enemy, powerful, confident, entrenched in the land. And yet, as the battle ensues, you find the commander of that army running away to seek safety and refuge in the tent of a woman. Contrasts at every turn. What's Samuel trying to teach us? What's his point? Well, that's why you have chapter five. Chapter five is the chapter. It's a song, really. It's a song of praise sung by Barak and Deborah. It's a song that explains, by and large, why things happen the way they happen and what it means in God's economy, what it means about the nation of Israel. It's a commentary on the events of chapter four, and it brings into focus not only what happened, but also why it happened. And that song has three parts. Chapter five can be broken down into three parts. Each part has its own internal contrast, which serves to make the point. And so we're going to study it in three parts, beginning with part one today. So Judges chapter five, verses one through eleven. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Avanoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, you marched from the field of Edom. The earth quaked. The heavens also dripped. Even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose until I arose a mother in Israel. New gods were chosen. Then. War was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets and you who travel on the road. Sing at the sound of those who divide the flocks among the watering places. There shall there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Well, this first section serves as background on the battle. It offers a glimpse into the way life was for Israel under the Canaanite oppression. And we'll have to look at it carefully to understand what Deborah is saying in this section. First, beginning in verses one through three. In those verses, she exclaims that this is going to be a song of praise for the Lord or to the Lord. And I want you to notice there's a first person singular reference there. And it actually continues at various points throughout the song. When you see first person, I, in other words, somebody is claiming this. Somebody is speaking. And that person is Deborah. So once again, though, we're told this is a song sung by both Deborah and Barak. Who's the author? 
It's Deborah. Again, we have this reminder of women leading in the culture in this time of, of Israel. And in these opening verses, she makes a couple of important points that are worth highlighting. First, she says this song was sung in the day that the battle was won. In other words, there's no delay on Deborah's part in praising the Lord for his work in this moment. She is immediately moved to praise. Now, I want you to notice in verse three, the second point is she's intent on this praise being heard by the world's kings and rulers and that they would therefore recognize that the Lord has done this work. And she says in verse two that even though the leaders have led and even though the people volunteered, it was the Lord who would be blessed for that outcome because it's the Lord who accomplished that work. The leaders would not have known what to do, much less have been successful in doing it if it hadn't been for the Lord. And the people wouldn't have had the courage to volunteer to go into battle which, for all intents and purposes, was a losing battle from their point of view, they wouldn't have the courage to do that if the Lord had not given them that courage. So in all these things, Deborah acknowledges the Lord won this battle. What she does here at the outset of this song is a really good example for us of godly humility in response to the success that the Lord awards us in life. That's a very specific example, right? This is success in a battle against a foreign invader. I mean, big deals in life, big accomplishments in their age. But the pattern is still applicable to much different circumstances, to everyday circumstances. And friends, I think as a matter of our theology as Christians, we are typically very willing, very ready to appeal to the sovereignty of God in moments of tragedy We turn to him in sorrow. We turn to him in the face of things we can't control that are going against our desire. But, friends, if we are willing to do that under those circumstances, then we should be equally willing to give him praise for triumphs as well. And I know you agree with me intellectually, but I wonder if you actually live that practically. When we need the Lord to help us pass a test, for example, in school or to succeed in some difficult assignment at work, It's very common for us to turn to him for help, whether in prayer or in some other way. And if you fail at a task, if you get to the point where you actually have things go badly, well, you're almost certainly going to pray for the Lord under those circumstances, asking for him to rescue us from our dilemma or from the circumstances of our failure. But do you think to immediately praise him when he grants you some kind of victory? Is that the first thought in your mind? Because it's so easy to forget to praise the Lord when things go well in life, like in a workplace setting or in school or whenever in family life, because we tend to take the credit for ourselves. It's just the state of human thinking of our natural being. We do the good things, but God needs to fix the bad things. And yet that's not biblical. Notice Deborah praises the Lord on the same day as the event transpired, and then she does so publicly to an audience of kings and rulers, so to speak. In other words, I'm not sure how the the message was communicated, but that was her intended audience. The world, friends, has to see the Lord at work in rewarding those who seek him. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? Those who are of faith must believe that the Lord is one and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The ultimate manifestation of our reward is the kingdom. We know that. But even now, the Lord is bestowing many other blessings upon us in this time of our life, in this day and age. And so the point here is that timely praise is important to glorifying the Lord among the nations, which, after all, is our whole mission for being here on earth, to glorify him before the nations. You land a new job at some point. You get accepted to the school that you've applied to. 
You score the winning point in the game. You receive some unexpected financial windfall. Well, then give the Lord immediate public praise for that blessing, for those outcomes, for they are, in fact, the Lord's work. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So let's be sure we're telling the world about his goodness and how he has blessed us, not not to the point of making our relationship with God only about those things, but by the same token, we don't neglect to mention those things, for they become opportunities. That's the first thought we take from what Deborah's writing. Then we move into verses 4 and 5. Deborah compares the Lord's work in freeing Israel from the Canaanites to the work that he did in prior generations when he freed Israel from Pharaoh in the Exodus. And Deborah calls Israel out to remember that. Remember that the Lord has this record of rescuing Israel in the past because that's essential to understanding his faithfulness to his covenant. Time and time again, the Lord has showed up to rescue Israel. And in particular, notice what Deborah highlights. She highlights the strength of the Lord on the one hand. He marched. He made mountains quake. He has cloud bringing rain in the desert. In fact, just the mere presence of the Lord at Mount Sierra brought these powerful displays. So you have the power of the Lord. And then look in verses six and seven. He says, back in the days of Shamgar, the man who fought with Ehud, remember? And again, now in the days of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, what do you see? The main highways are deserted. Do you know why they're deserted? Because Jews were traveling in their own promised land, their own land on back roads because they were too fearful of what would happen if they were out on the main roads. They would be abused or attacked or molested by the Canaanites who would now come into the land. Imagine being so fearful and timid, you had to hide and sneak around in your own land because of the enemy that was among you. And it says the peasants of Israel, the peasantry, was no longer taking place. That's a way of saying the normal day-to-day life of growing and selling crops, of doing what farmers did, stopped because of Canaanite threats and oppression and malfeasance of one kind or another. So what Deborah's doing is he's painting this contrast. Here's the contrast at part one of chapter five. The powerful God of Israel and the weak, impotent Israel in the face of their enemies. Downtrodden culture, slaves in their own land, humiliated, fearful. That's who Israel was, but the Lord is the powerful one. An important distinction that they needed to remember. If the Lord is so powerful and if Israel is God's people... Why is Israel so weak? Why is Israel so downtrodden? The only answer to that is that they are suffering as a result of turning away from the living God. And he has permitted this suffering to make a point. That's the key contrast in part one of the song. A powerful God of Israel contrasted with a weak and oppressed people of Israel. And friends, this is the situation that develops every single time that the people of Israel reject their God. Every time they go to that point. The Lord brings them to this situation to illustrate their error, that Israel is nothing without the Lord's strength. And then somehow, despite these lessons, they come back to this place. And the way they do that is that as they strengthen again, as the Lord restores them in the land. Remember, we've been watching this cycle now through the book of Judges. We're on the third of these turns. Every time they get strengthened and restored and back to peaceful existence in the land, what happens? Where do they go wrong? 
Well, chapter four and now chapter five is about helping you understand what is the central issue that causes Israel to keep turning back again. When they get strong in the land, when they have victories in the land, when they prosper in the land, they start crediting their own strength. They stop remembering that they depend on the strength of the Lord. Now, you may remember back in Deuteronomy, if you've looked in how God spoke to Israel in that book, you may remember that the Lord speaking through Moses told Israel in advance that this would be their undoing in the land, that they would come into a land that was rich and that the Lord would bless them in this land. But as soon as he did that, they would think that they themselves made them that way and they would forget the Lord. And this is what he said to them in Deuteronomy 8.11. He says, beware, speaking to Israel, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good homes and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, well, then your hearts will become proud And you will forget the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness and its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. And in the wilderness, he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, well, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. And he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as in this day. It shall come about that if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of your God. This is so characteristic of human nature. I mean, we can beat up on Israel, but they're not alone in this. As soon as you've got a nice house, as soon as you've got all that you want multiplying, silver, gold and the like, what happens? My strength, my hand, I did this. Look at me. And then, of course, when it all crumbles, God, where are you? It's human nature. Israel's pride, their self-satisfaction led them to turn from the dependence they had on the Lord to the idolatry of depending on self or eventually to the gods of the peoples around them. Friends, that's a basic spiritual principle of Scripture. It's a basic principle of the entire Bible. The people of God must turn from a prideful, self-satisfied heart so that we can recognize our utter dependence on the Lord. And these things are diametrically opposed. You will either live with an understanding that the Lord sustains you in all things, Or you will think you are doing it yourself and the degree to which you fall in either camp is a good measure of your spiritual maturity. If you forget that the Lord's strength sustains you, then in my experience, he is more likely to let you fail and fall in some context as a means of discipline so that he can show you the mistake of your pride. I mean, what better way to show somebody that they're dependent on the Lord than to pull the rug out from under you when you think it's all dependent on you? And when you can't survive that or when you can't compensate, when you can't fix that thing in your life that's going sideways, finally, maybe it gets through our thick head that the Lord's really in control of my life and I have to start listening to him because I can't do it all of my own. And even when the Lord is ready to restore us, he can do it in a very humbling way so that our pride is not provoked anew 
even as he restores. I want you to notice at the end of verse seven, Deborah says that those sad conditions of peasantry ceasing and no one walking main roads and all the rest. She says those sad conditions continued until what? Until it says she arose to fix them. And then she adds, just to make sure you're getting the point, I, a mother of Israel, a mother in Israel. Now, look, she's not diminishing the importance of motherhood. That's not her point. Her point is what an unlikely choice. When, when God is ready to restore an entire nation, he picks a mom. There's something very apropos about that. But, but that's not what you would expect. And her point is, the Lord was humbling Israel at the hands of their enemies to chasten them for their haughtiness. But even when the time came to rescue them, he delivered them in a way that furthered their humiliation, at least in the sense that it illustrated that they were not in control of their own destiny like they thought they were. Because he appointed a woman, of all people, to lead them into military battle. And again, we're not diminishing what women can do. We're simply illustrating that for a patriarchal culture, this is a bit of a wake-up call, a slap in the face. And the Lord even called a military leader with her, a man named Barak, who lacked the fortitude to enter the battle of his own initiative. I mean, the whole thing is unlikely characters being called to do unlikely things to embarrass the elite the ones of the culture who should have done these things. And notice verse 8, Deborah says, new gods were chosen. The Hebrew word for gods can also be translated rulers or even the word judge. You may remember in the Gospels, there's a point at which Jesus says, if he called you gods, can I not be the son of God? He's using the term like you see it used here. Judges, rulers, in other words. So what Deborah is doing is referring to herself. New gods were called new in the sense of unlikely, unexpected Something that would humiliate the prideful men of Israel. But what's really interesting is the Lord didn't even stop there. No, when the Lord goes the next step and he assembles the army that's going to fight against this Canaanite king, he made sure they were so poorly outfitted for battle that there was no logical reason to think they would prevail. None whatsoever. Look what she says. This is stuff we didn't get in chapter four. She says that the army lacked even the basic implements of war. She says that among 40,000, none brought a spear or a shield to battle. And the word for 40,000 could also be translated 40 divisions. I think that's what it may mean rather than 40,000. The reason I say that is because we heard earlier in chapter four that there were 10,000 men recruited from Naphtali and Zebulun. So if this means 40 divisions, not 40,000, then what he'd be saying, of course, is that the 10,000 Jewish warriors were divided into 40 divisions of 250 each. And that's a pretty logical grouping. 250 men is about the right size to manage in a, in a unit of battle. So it would seem as though you had 40 groups of 250 warriors from Naphtali and Zebulun. But friends, none of them had a decent weapon among them. Not a one. I mean, this is no accident, right? Literally, we're sitting 10,000 guys up in frocks and sandals against chariots made of iron. And that's going to win the battle. Friends, what the Lord wants everyone to understand is he won this battle. And let there be no confusion. An army without weapons does not win a battle on its own. That's his point. And in fact, throughout the whole book of Judges, I know we're only into chapter 5, but if you've read it or if you know some of the stories, you might remember some of the things that the Lord equips his warriors with whenever he sends them into battle. So far, we've had a one-handed man with a small dagger. We've had an ox goad. Now we, we have an army with no weapons whatsoever. Later you get a guy fighting with the jawbone of a donkey. Crazy stuff. Why? To make the point. 
This army did possess one very powerful weapon, though. Faith. Faith in God's ability and in his will to deliver them. And Deborah sings that way. She sings that her heart went out to this ragtag group of soldiers. And for obvious reasons, because they signed up for what would have looked like a suicide mission. And their commanders with them bravely entered into battle, obviously willing to die for Israel, having perhaps no idea exactly how the battle would be won. And in facing a vastly superior opposition, a vastly superior army, but they did so because they believed that the Lord would deliver them. And that's why Deborah stands amazed at their faith and she sings their praise. And then lastly, verses 10 through 11. She repeats the importance of testifying to the Lord's victory among every class of Jewish society. Notice she lists them out here. She says, verse 10 She declares those who ride on white donkeys, sit on rich carpets, travel on the roads. All those people should praise the Lord. A white donkey or a white horse, for that matter, was reserved for royalty or for rulers or leaders in that culture. So she's referring to those who ride on white donkeys as the ruling class. And then those who sit on rich carpets, well, that would have been your wealthy merchant class, your business owners and the like. They had the luxury to just sit around and other people served and waited on them. And then lastly, or thirdly, you have travelers on roads. Those who had to travel the roads, that's your working class. Those are the ones who had to move goods between markets or from field to market, etc. These are the working class of the culture. And then in verse 11, she goes deeper into the culture. She lists shepherds, which are below working class. And then you have peasants who were day laborers. That's the lowest in society. She's pointing out that at all levels of Jewish society, there should be an expectation that there is praise for what God is doing in delivering the nation. There's no room for pride in Israel. You don't have pride that you're rich or ruling any more than you do simply because you're a peasant. There's no room for that. The Lord is prepared to handle the needs of everyone in that respect. And she ends by saying everyone is to gather at the city meeting place, that is the gate, to testify to the Lord's power and what he has done. Friends, this is what the Lord expects. It's talking about Israel. We understand that. But the principles are applicable across the board. God expects his people, both in Israel and today in the church, to recognize you are equally dependent on the Lord. We are all equally dependent on the Lord for every good thing that he provides. And obviously, he has provided at different levels to each of us in different ways. That is self-evident. There are differences in this room in strength. There are differences in this room in health. There are differences in wealth and even in peacefulness or in the state of our life in other respects. But friends, despite those differences, we are all equally dependent on him. And no matter your station in life, he has determined the course of your life and of my life. And therefore, we are all equally obligated to credit him with the victories we have and with the blessings we received and with where we stand in life. If our mind runs to what we do not have instead of to blessing him for what we do have, we have immediately walked away from an awareness of our dependence. And we've assumed that where we sit in life is completely within our control. Now, on the other hand, do we have some place in our our situation, a, a role to play in who we are and what we do? Well, of course we do. Of course we do. But what is that role? The role is to follow the Lord, to follow his spirit. Where he takes us is where we're supposed to go. The tendency, though, is to define our own path. And when we do that, we work against him. And then he may let us have what we want, but it becomes to our own detriment. I think of Balaam in chapter 22 of Numbers. What Balaam wanted to do is not what God wanted him to do, but God acquiesced. He allowed Balaam to do it under certain limitations to the detriment of Balaam, to the condemnation of Balaam. 
I think of how we do with our own kids as parents. Sometimes your kids want the wrong thing and you tell them that and they don't listen to you. And sometimes it's helpful to let them have what they don't need to a degree. There's sometimes a kid wants to buy something and you say, that's not the right use of your money. You shouldn't do that. And they determine to buy it. You say, all right, well, if you want to waste your money, go ahead. What are you doing in that moment? You're teaching them a lesson because you're confident in the consequences that are going to follow. And when they follow, you have a learning opportunity. Now, we do this within limits, so we don't harm the child more than necessary. But sometimes a little pain is an effective teacher, sorrows in various ways. Well, the Lord is going to do exactly the same thing and far better than we do it. If we're determined to live our life in a way that ignores him and his provision and considers our own needs above his, he'll let you have it only to a point, but he'll do it to make the point to you that you sought the wrong thing. Let's not let our successes go to our heads as happened in Israel. The more successful we become in the world, the harder it can be to recognize the Lord's sovereignty in your life. Wasn't it Jesus who said it's virtually impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? As he told the parable. In other words, a wealthy man or woman is likely to think that he or she has gained everything by his own or her own hand. And therefore, that person is unlikely to acknowledge the need for God. That was the central concern Christ had. And it wasn't the riches of the person that barred them from the kingdom, as Jesus taught that parable. It was the heart attitude that that person had, which interpreted their earthly success as spiritual validation. That was the problem. It's as if to say my worldly success means I have no need. I have been blinded to my spiritual poverty by my earthly riches. That was the issue. But friends, even a believer is capable of that. Even a believer can be capable of slipping into a mindset that says my earthly success in whatever context is validation from God that I have spiritual strength. No lie could be further from the truth. When everything in life is humming along really, really well and we are very self-satisfied and we don't appear to have any cares or concerns, that is a very poor measure, very poor measure of God's pleasure in us. And you have to go no further than the Gospels and the book of Acts to see that lived out. The men that followed Christ and became the early leaders in the church were men that probably put our life of faith to shame in comparison. And yet they lived miserable lives compared to the ones that God may have granted to us. So how are we to say that the quality and the satisfaction of our life is the measure of whether God is happy with us or not? By that measure, he must have been very unhappy with the apostles. For that matter, what did he think of his own son who he put on the cross? You see, the whole math breaks down when we start to use it in that way. The opposite is typically more true. If we are self-satisfied, if we're feeling like we've arrived spiritually, then friends, hold on because the Lord is probably about to rock your world because he needs to. Anytime Israel began to trust in their wealth in the land rather than rely on the Lord, they found the consequences of Deuteronomy 8. As God spelled it out, as Moses foretold, when they started to say, my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth. When they started to show the consequence of pride, pride that caused them to forget that what they had was from the Lord. What came next? At some point, he said they would perish. How do you combat that tendency? That's the lesson of part one in this praise song. If you have a tendency to praise him for his provision and for his blessing, not to take it for granted, If you have a regular paycheck, every two weeks you get that nice amount of money in your bank and you just take for granted it's going to be there every week. Do you ever consider that every two weeks is another test for whether or not you have credited the Lord for his provision? 
or when you have a small tax refund you didn't expect or a large one for that matter, or when something else comes your way, do you ever stop and say to yourself, the Lord, Lord, you didn't have to give me this, but you chose to. This is to your credit. I want to tell someone about this. We can talk about the big things, the meaningful things of our life. Praise him for his provision. Because any time the Lord chooses to bless us in a particular way, whether financially, physically, our strength, our health or whatever, he does so with an expectation that we would praise him for it. And it isn't simply a matter of thanking him. It means continually checking our pride, not allowing our egos to take credit for what he does. So if you find yourself doing that from time to time, or maybe this is the first time you've even thought about it, You've thought about your wealth or your accomplishments as if it was a reflection on your hard work, your effort. The Lord may bring your world crashing down in ways you don't expect, but he'll do it so that you'll recognize your dependence on him. And he may do it in unexpected ways. Men who pride themselves on wealth or power may lose their health or their family. Women who pride themselves on their looks, well, they may fall to temptation. The Lord may find all kinds of ways to rock our world so that he'll get our attention and deflate our pride. And he does this because he loves us. Because in eternity, who we are and what we have becomes a function of how we served him. Not how much we accumulated. Not how strong we were, how long we lived. Those things are incidental and he's in control of them. The first lesson out of chapter 5 of Judges is Israel was weak. The Lord was strong. He won the battle. They didn't. They praised him so that their pride would not be re-inflamed. Let's go to Lord in prayer and to communion. Dear Father, I ask you, Father, you protect us from our own pride and our, our desire to overlook your provision. And Father, I know that you are the one who has provided to all things, the good things that we all enjoy at various levels. And you've done it, Father, because you love us, but you've also asked us, Father, to praise the world. So we ask, Lord, you give us the courage to do that, the, the mind to do that, to consider these things carefully. As we look at what Deborah had to say about her circumstances, we find a model. Help us, Father, to remember that model. That we declare publicly and immediately what you do. Not excessively, Father, not to the point where we wear out the ears of those who would hear. Or that it appears to be nothing more than pride at work in a different way. But gently, Father, have us do it gently in love. And in ways that edify others and speak truth to a world that needs to hear it, let us be useful to you in that way. Father, I thank you that we get reminders like this from your word. Things that challenge us, things that cause us to rethink our own lives. That's, that's the spiritual growth we need, Father. Please don't ever let it go away for us, Father. Don't let us succumb to what the world would want to hear and affirm us or validate us in the way we are. That is not spiritual growth. But, Father, chasten us. Rock our world if that's what's needed. But, Father, in all these things, give us mercy as we, we uh, need, Father, for apart from your mercy, we'd have nothing. And, uh, Father, in this small congregation, I know that there may be those who, who are seeking ways to serve you, seeking ways to speak truth to the world about you, and may, may not know the where to take that first step, how to... How to step out. I pray, Lord, you'd be giving them courage and, and insight even now. That their hearts are in the right place. Their desire is there, Father. But they just want to they know more clearly how they can do what you've asked them to do. How they can be bolder in these last days. And I pray, Lord, you'd be giving them that wisdom as well. And uh, let us go into a time of prayer now, Father. Reflecting on these things. And praising you in our communion time as well. For you deserve all honor and praise. 
In Jesus' name, amen.